Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 385 with Hal Gregerson. I am excited to share this conversation with Hal with you because it is so powerful in terms of what it can do to unlock answers to the things you don't know that you don't know. So you'll learn one, how to ask better questions, two, the four-minute question burst method to spark new ideas, and three, how the most creative organizations use questions wisely. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F385. Now here's Hal's story. Hal Gregerson is the executive director of the MIT Leadership Center and a senior lecturer in leadership and innovation at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he pursues his vocation of executive teaching, coaching, and research by exploring how leaders in business, government, and society discover provocative new ideas, develop the human and organizational capacity to realize those ideas, and deliver positive, powerful results. So thanks to Hal for talking to us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Hal. Hal, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks, Pete. Wonderful to be with you today. Oh, I'm so excited to dig into this good stuff. And thanks, Janica, a listener, for connecting us. That's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, our, Janica is um, exceptional at asking questions. Years ago, she was a research assistant, worked with me, and um, helped me push the edge of some of my work back then and, and still does that today. That's cool. Well, I want to hear about different boundaries, if you will. You've lived in 10 different states and five different countries. What are some of the key things you've learned from having been around? Oh, where do you start? You know, it, um, have you ever lived in, have you had the chance to live in more than one country, Pete? Well, lived in is probably a strong word. Okay. I've purchased groceries and I was there for a week, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know if it counts. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, as you well know, traveling to a country and living in a country are two different things. Um, and, you know, the, the power of living in a different country is that, or even being in a, living in a bicultural family, is that it doubles the probability that we'll ask a question that otherwise we wouldn't ask and get a valuable new idea that otherwise we would never get. 
And all of that happens because we're able to see the world through completely different values and lenses. And so one of the greatest gifts that we can give to ourselves or to those closest to us is actually the chance to live in a different place, a very different culture. So they've been profound. And and part of that seeing the world through a different lens comes from being pushed to the complete edge of your experience. So when I moved to France, I didn't know French. And at every level of my life, I was pushed to the edge. At work, it was a completely new work routine. Um, In our village and community, it was very difficult to integrate it. In our church context, it was similarly difficult to integrate. And to be truthful, Pete, I probably two or three years was moderately to severely depressed, sometimes just wanting to pull the covers over my head and like, I don't want to get up and go to work today. Mm. It just completely flattened me out, pushed me down. But you know, sometimes it's from the, (laughs) it's from the dirt of the earth that we sort of rise. And, um, out of that came some grounding, you know, some very different ways of looking at the world, and gratefully so. You know, I, I never would have said that in the middle of it, but um, you have people who are around you who help you rethink and re-ask and reframe in ways that um, we've walked away from these five countries always with friends who were so close and deep that um, – you know, you can meet them 5, 10, 15 years later, and it's like it was yesterday. Beautiful. That's cool. What a blessing. I'm speechless. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's talk about right now, your work role is the director of the MIT Leadership Center. What is that all about? Well, the Leadership Center was started over a decade ago, and um, it's, it's, for, it's a leadership center for all of MIT, including the business school, but even beyond. And I came here four or five years ago, and when I landed, I ran across this Kauffman Foundation report, which basically said that the alumni from MIT have launched over 30,000 active companies. They employ close to 5 million people. They generate almost $2 trillion of revenue in the world, which is like between the ninth and 10th largest gross domestic product by country in the world. And I'm like, how do they do that? And so we, for several years, literally studied MIT alumni and graduates to figure out what is it they're doing that enables them to create this enormous change in value and and approach to the world. And so what we landed on, Pete, was was we call it problem-led leadership. Leaders at MIT don't step up to follow people. It's all about what's the challenge? What's the problem that you care so deeply about that I would love to work with you on it? And that's just how they operate. And so, you know, they pick big, huge problems. And these are incredibly bright, smart, analytical people. But they pick problems that are so big they cannot solve them themselves. And as a result, it's this fascinating team dynamic of, You've got this skill, I've got that skill. You step up, I step back, you step up, I step back. And we just iterate and we bump into deep conflicts. And over time, we actually solve things that other people often don't. And so it's a fascinating way of looking at leadership. It's it's all about waking up and showing up in the morning with what challenge and problem is so interesting to me that I can't not solve it. Now, contrast that with people who wake up and go to work in the morning wondering what's the politics of the day in the workplace. 
those are that's the antithesis of a problem-led organization. And so that's why I love MIT. This place just thrives on trying to figure out what are the world's biggest challenges to solve. And you and I both know there are big challenges out there. And what's really fascinating is that for the most part, these folks are deeply engaged in actually solving some edges of the biggest problems. Well, that's really interesting because you think of, you know, people at MIT, their associations in terms of just like utter brilliance, and then also maybe some of the pejorative associations of some of that, if you think about like a computer engineering person. And I'm sure that's pretty unfair, <laughs> you know, for large swaths of the population there. But it's really intriguing. You think that you got those brains and it's almost like the only way you can get a rush or to have some real fun with that brain is to get a problem that's just gigantic and go after it. Well, I mean, so one of my former executive MBA students, recently I bumped into him and he he works at Mitra Biotech. You probably never heard of the place, but they basically take blood samples of cancer, people in cancer uh, who or in, who know they have cancer and they're going to get treatment, but we have to figure out as oncologists, what treatment should we give them? And historically, it's like a guessing game. And so he and others at Mitra Biotech, they literally have, have used some of the questioning techniques you and I are going to talk about, but they are just problem solvers and questioners at the core to the point that they've created this ability to draw the blood of a, someone that has cancer and to test it rapidly in a few days with different protocols of different um, chemotherapy protocols. And they can pretty much nail it that this is the one that will work. And at one point, they were just stuck trying to figure out a better solution to what they were doing with their technology. And they literally asked nothing but questions, a method he had learned from me in class and his team. And it actually unstuck in a way that got them to get a better, more accurate answer and a quicker answer. And the cool thing about that is, is that one of his relatives was in cancer treatment or preparing to as they were doing it. And it was one of those just-in-time solutions that came by asking a different question that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And so we may, we may look at MIT people as nerds, and they're certainly bright and they're smart, but they really do solve problems that make our lives better. Absolutely. And not to slam any MIT people, you know, huge, huge respect <laughs> <laughs> all the way around. I've, I've got plenty of no. nerdy tendencies myself. You know, I, I didn't take this as a slam. <laughs> So, so on the one hand, they're really good at that. And on the other hand, um, the Achilles heel often is um, empathy and perspective taking and figuring out what's going on in the room beyond the problem being solved. So, you know, there are challenges too that come with it. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, well, I'm so fascinated by this. So this cancer treatment selection knowledge that has been created, is this kind of widespread and common practice now? More so. I mean, they are they are doing it around the world. The the colleague of mine, he actually the former student, he's running the India operation now, and so they're they're trying to do that all over. I mean, another guy named Jeff Carp, who's affiliated with the MIT system and runs Carp Labs, he was trying to figure out how how can you heal a baby's heart when you're doing an operation when it's moving and wet and sticky, but you've got to hook it together and hold it together. 
And he actually learned by looking at slugs and other different things in the real world how to create this gooey substance that actually holds the sticky thing together. It's amazing. That's cool. That's cool. Well, let's dig into this approach in terms of nothing but questions. So you unpack a bit of this in your book, Questions Are the Answer. What's sort of the broad thesis of the book? (laughs) At the very core, it's so counterintuitive because usually when we're stuck, we just double down and dig deeper and deeper for what's the right answer here? What's the right answer here? And counterintuitively, When we are operating at the edge of uncertainty, when we're trying to figure out what we don't know we don't know, by definition, there are not answers on that edge. And so we're looking for something that isn't there. But asking a different question will actually unlock a new answer that we otherwise would never have seen. And so it's 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 almost by definition, when we're working in a world or on the edge of uncertainty and the unknown, questions are the answer. And so when we're stuck, when whether it be at work or in life, when we're stuck, we're just asking the wrong questions. And the path out of that stuckedness, the window, the door to something better, is actually that key of asking the right question. Mm-hmm. Well, so... Very intriguing. Can you maybe give us an example? So, for example, I mean, I I met when I lived in in France, Andreas Heineke, who 30 years ago, he's a plus years ago, he's a reporter in Germany working, I think, in a newspaper. And um, his boss brings a new employee in and says, this guy got in an accident. He used to be able to see, but now he's blind. Andreas, could you help him? figure out how to be a reporter. Okay. Andreas is like, what? What do I do here? But Andreas, when he was a little kid, had a hearing disability and it made it a little hard and kids made fun of him. So Andreas was sensitive to this man's situation. And his first question was, you know, what kinds of tasks could this person do as a reporter? Which is a good question. And it opened up some opportunities there. And then he worked it and worked with this guy and worked the question to the point that it became a different question, Pete. And the new question was, where could someone without sight thrive at work? Not just do a few tasks, but thrive. Mm -hmm. And when he asked that question, he thought about it and he realized, they would thrive at a workplace that's dark pitch black. And he created Dialogue in the Dark, where literally people like you and me, we pay an amount, we go to one of their exhibits all over the world, and we go through the dark space guided by blind people who are adept and professional in the dark. And you and I have to learn how to cross streets, navigate restaurants, navigate buying food, navigate walking in the park, all in the dark. And what he's done with that is he's created this experience where as we interact with the darkest sighted people, we gain deeper empathy for others who don't have what we have. And we, we learn things and we have our assumptions challenged. This has happened with 10 million people now. They're one of the largest employers of, of blind people on the earth. And all of that came from Andreas reframing a good question, which was, what could this blind person do as a reporter to where could a blind person thrive 
And then it turned into this social enterprise that literally has made a big impact, especially for those working in it as the blind folks, but also the 10 million plus visitors who generally walk away having seen the world differently. Now, this is fascinating. And so the question evolved and how can we facilitate, accelerate this question evolution? Well, this is the tricky thing. You know, you haven't done it yet. Maybe you will. You, I think you just might, but most reporters ask me the question, well, how, what are the questions I should be asking? Which is not a bad question at one level. So I could say, well, Pete, I think you should start with trying to figure out what's going on in the situation. What's working, what's not, and why? And then once you understand what's really going on, it's like, well, let's try some prescriptive future-oriented questions like what if, what if this and why not that and how might this and so on. So those are giving you a list of questions. But what I discovered in interviewing 200 plus of some of the world's most creative leaders, Jeff Bezos at Amazon, Daniel Lamar, the CEO of Cirque du Soleil, Ed Catmull, who's the CEO and one of the founders of of Pixar and now Disney Animation Studios, Diane Green, who founded VMware. I could go on with a list of just amazing people who are sustainably innovative and creative. And when I asked them, how do you find the right question when you're stuck? They didn't give me a list of questions. What they said was, we intentionally put ourselves in situations over and over and over so that the right question for the context emerges and opens up doors and windows that would never have opened. Now, that probably sounds like, what are you talking about? That's just some big theoretical blah, blah, blah. But that's what it was. They put themselves in conditions where questions came to them that otherwise wouldn't, and they were so unique to the situation like Andreas Heineke's was, that it often led to the creation of a business, some of which today are worth billions of dollars. So when you're putting yourself in that situation, that context, so what does that mean exactly? It's just sort of like taking on a challenge bigger than you have any idea of what you're doing? Or what does that context insertion look like? It starts with either having a challenge or it starts with a problem or an opportunity, but then it's, it's putting myself in situations where I'm going to ask different questions. And here's what, here are the conditions, <laughs> at least that I discovered with these 200 people. Put ourselves in conditions where we're wrong, not right, where the, where the situation makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, maybe quite uncomfortable. And when most of us are wrong and uncomfortable, our instinct is to run from it. But these folks embraced it in a way that they were reflectively quiet. And as a result, the question emerged that unlocked doors that otherwise weren't there. And so it's being wrong, uncomfortable, and reflectively quiet. What kinds of situations do that? I can give you a quick example. Mm -hmm. So literally over a decade ago, it was the first interview with Mark Benioff who founded Salesforce.com. And he's originally a salesperson for Oracle. And he's doing a great job. He's incredibly successful. He's always at the edge of the organization, constantly bumping into customers, getting positive and negative feedback about what's working and what isn't. And by the end of 15 years, he's slightly burned out while he's incredibly successful. And he's got this gnawing challenge that he's been trying to figure out, which is 
How on earth can small and medium-sized enterprises take full advantage of this large enterprise software when they can't afford it? That's what he's trying to figure out. And part of that comes from his own family history of small and medium enterprises. And anyway, he's trying to figure it out, but he doesn't have an answer. He takes a year-long sabbatical, but he doesn't sit around on his behind. He does what he's been doing for the last 15 years. He gets up, he gets out, he talks to people all over the world, rich people, poor people, government leaders, business leaders, religious leaders, just the whole range of folks from different perspectives. And he's constantly bumping into himself being wrong and a bit uncomfortable about answers that he's hearing and questions that are getting asked. But he's reformulating and reformulating and trying to figure out this issue of small, medium enterprise and large enterprise software. And then he's swimming with the dolphins and he finally gets the question, which is, what if we sold enterprise level software like Amazon sells books on the internet? Mm-hmm. He did not find that question looking in a book of questions to ask. <laughs> yeah. And that question today seems inevitable. It seems self-evident. But back then, they thought he was an idiot when he asked it. But he'd done that hard, wrong, uncomfortable, quiet homework over and over to where the question emerged that otherwise wouldn't. And so the homework, and when he's talking to these people, what's he asking these people? It would range from, you know, it's some of those questions I mentioned earlier, Pete. I'm not exactly sure what he was asking, but my hunch would be, He's trying to figure out, first of all, what's the terrain? What's working in your world? What isn't? And trying to create a safe enough space that people actually give him honest answers. That's the tough thing. I mean, those are simple questions, Pete. What's working, what's not, and why? But creating a safe enough space for people to give you the honest answer, that's a tough one. And so, you know, when I met Mark a few years ago, walking through the World Economic Forum Davos meetings, I was visiting with him. I said, Mark, how do you ask the right questions? And he looked me right in the eye. He's about my same height at six foot four-ish. And he just said one word, listen. And then he was quiet. I'm like, hmm, what's he doing here? (laughs) And I think what Mark was doing was figuring out what kind of listener is Hal Gregerson? Is it just ears? Is he all here? Is he 100% present? And then after a few seconds, he waited. And then we had a 15-minute or so conversation about what does it mean to listen, ranging from Jewish Kabbalistic traditions to the whole. It was a worldwide kind of conversation about what does it mean to listen. And, you know, I think that's what he was doing. He was posing questions. What's working around here? What are you frustrated with? And then he shut up. Now, it's one of the the diagnostic questions of whether or not we're um, good in these conditions of raw and comfortable and quiet is when we ask a question, how long do we normally wait on average Mm -hmm. for someone someone else to answer? 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, or we're filling in the space with some follow-up question or our own answer, pretty much everybody in the room already knows the answer, and the question is probably not even worth asking. (laughs) And the real questions are the ones where it causes someone else and or us to step back, think twice, reflect a bit. It's usually a three-second pause rate, and then we start a conversation. 
it's not just a back and forth. It's a conversation to try to figure something out. And, you know, I live here in Massachusetts now, and one of the former governors, Deval Patrick, um, he once told me in an interview I had with him, he just said, it's the power of the pause, Hal. He said, whether it's working as a consultant when he was young as a Bain consultant or whether it, um, it, it was, I think he was a Bain, whether, he, whether it's um, being the governor, he said, it's always that last one or two seconds after you ask a question that if you're just quiet and listen and people know you care, people will start offering you information. Again, it might be information that could make you feel really uncomfortable and really wrong about how you're looking at the world. But it's the stuff that changes things. Mm-hmm. Well, that's lovely. Thank you. So now I'm curious. Let's talk about listening well, such that the other person's feeling safe. And I guess one of the key is just be okay being silent for more than three seconds. That could take you fairly far. What are some of the other best practices in terms of listening well and creating that psychological safety such that folks will really tell you the truth about what's working, what's not working, et cetera. Can I come back to your question from a different angle, Pete, which is there's this method that I discovered 20 years ago called the question verse. And I was with a group of people. I was stuck in a challenge and um, we were stuck collectively. And it was about some gender diversity and equity issues in the organization. And the energy was low in the room and we were just languishing. And I think, you know, those moments, Mm-hmm. And I had this instinct from what I've been reading from some things from Parker Palmer and other folks, like how just stop everything and ask nothing but questions. So that's what we did. It was the days of blackboards and we had like three or four blackboards in the room we were operating in. And I said, let's just fill these blackboards up with nothing but questions for the next 10, 15 minutes. No answers to them. No explanations of why we're asking the question, just questions. And by the end of that process, it was like, whoa, what happened here? The energy rose, ideas to actually solve the problem surfaced that otherwise weren't there. And ever since then, I've used this question burst method, sometimes in four-minute bursts with individuals or with pairs or with trios or in groups of five or six, where it's even longer than four minutes at times. But the rules are no answers to questions, no explanations of the questions for a very fixed period of time. And when we do that, we get to the end of that process, and 80% of the time, we're emotionally in a better place. 80% of the time, we have at least one new idea. 80% of the time, we've reframed the challenge at least slightly. It's like an amazing vehicle by which we see things differently. So that question burst is what I did with the senior executive at a company that was trying to listen better. And that's where I'm coming back to your question about how do you listen better? And and I was talking with him about a challenge, which was one of their distribution facilities where people were packing and shipping stuff. The workers felt like they were being treated inequitably. And um, the reality was they were being by with their pay. And the reality was they were being paid higher than market rate for that region and area. And so we did this question verse. I said, okay, let's set the timer, four minutes, nothing but questions, no answers, no explanations. We got 20 questions at the end of that. And then we looked through them. And I asked him, you know, which questions really resonated for you that they might help you solve this challenge? These are the two that, two of the ones that were really crucial. The first question was, how often are you in that facility, that packaging facility? And his answer was, 
I couldn't remember the last time he visited it. The second question was, what do you see in their eyes when they're expressing this sense of unfairness about pay? And he didn't know, but he knew he needed to know. And the good news is he got up, he got out, he got into the world, he got into their world, and he started building the trust by which he could get answers to those questions. Oh, yeah. And so that's one of the biggest things is that we rarely get a catalytic question, a transformational question. We rarely get an idea that changes the world or its breakthrough. It rarely, if ever, happens sitting in our office. Sitting in our office is a great place to be isolated, to be comfortable, to be right, you know. That's what offices are for generally. But getting up and out where the situations would put us in front of people in places where we're a bit provoked and wrong and uncomfortable, that's where the better questions surface. I really like that. And that really made it clear in terms of the being wrong and uncomfortable in terms of, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. And I feel like I should. And I have done wrong by not getting there often enough. And I'm uncomfortable by the fact that you've exposed this shortcoming or inadequacy in my management. Oh, can, I, can I show you a personal experience about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, so here at MIT, they invited me to do a questioning workshop or seminar with some of the local administrative staff on the floor that I'm on in the area. And I did. And we sat down and it's this, again, part of the workshop was this question burst method. And we sat in trios and we each took two minutes to explain our challenge and then four minutes to generate questions. And I was the third person in the trio. Came my turn. I explained my challenge, which was, you know, it's just really hard for me to work with administrative assistants. I'm not quite sure what to ask them to do or how to get them meaningfully involved with my work. And then it was quiet. Okay, okay, four minutes, nothing but questions. And the first question that one of the admin assistants in this trio said to me, Pete, she said, Hal, uh, do you have control issues? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. It was like this hot dagger just just got jabbed into my heart. And I felt a bit flushed. I felt awkward. And it was like, man, she went right to the issue, didn't she? (laughs) And what's beautiful about this simple process of asking nothing but questions is that it forces us to be quiet. We can't answer. We can't respond. We have to live with the question. And when we, you know, by the end of it, I realized I need to rethink some things that I'm doing. And with the question burst approach, so you mentioned your situation associated with your administrative assistance mm-hmm. and others chimed in with their questions. So are you not generating questions? You're just receiving questions? So let's pretend you and I did it if we had time. You know, I could take six minutes right now if you want. <laughs> I'm happy to. Let's do it. Try. I want to give it a run. Let's go for it, yeah. So why don't you explain to me a challenge? And here's how it works. We explain a challenge to somebody. Here's my opportunity or challenge. We have no more than two minutes to do that. And that's purposeful because if we explain it for more than two minutes, we start walking other people into our stuckedness. We tell them too much. Mm-hmm. And so it's a two-minute rule. Just explain it in two minutes. And then at the end, and if it's less than two minutes, I get it fine. But then we just like, for four minutes, ask nothing but questions about the challenge. Do you want to give it a run? Okay, sure thing. And now what I'm clarifying is you are the sole question generator or are we both generating the questions? I actually do this myself alone. Okay. 
if I'm doing it with somebody else, both of us speak and generate questions. But if it's your challenge, you know, on average, you're probably well off to listen mostly to my questions. Okay. (laughs) But both of us can generate. Okay. So I'll let you do the majority. All right. Well, let's go for it. Okay. Let's say a situation that's top of mind. Can I interrupt you for one second? Take it away. The best use of this method is to pick a challenge that is really important to you, that you're really stuck on, and that you might feel a little awkward telling the world about. Okay. So go for it. <laughs> well, I think this counts, and I do feel somewhat awkward, especially telling this world about it, because I want to talk about the podcast itself in terms of, I've observed in terms of the data from the number of downloads or the engagement in terms of how deep into an episode people listen, it's rather clear that some episodes are hits and others are, yeah, okay. I'd like them all to be hits. (laughs) And so, yeah, how can I make that happen? Okay. So the challenge is how can I make everything a hit? Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Um, I'm going to set my timer, four minutes and... We're going to launch into it. Are you ready? I'm ready. There we go. And here's the other rule before we, as we start. I'm inviting you to write all the questions down verbatim, word for word, because sometimes if you switch the words that I say to your words, you miss the question. So Okay. I'm going to get the typing going because I type faster. Okay. Just type them as fast as you can. So here we go. Um, why uh, can every podcast be a hit? Um, is that realistic? What makes you uncomfortable when podcasts don't work? What kinds of people generate um, the most interest? Is there any commonality across it? Whom do you most care about as an audience member? If you could influence one person on planet Earth with your podcast, who would that be? Why does having a perfect um, hit rate work or, you know, high success rate. Why why does it matter? What is success on a podcast? I'll throw out a question. What's the mix or breakdown of guest sources in terms of where are they coming from and in what proportions? What podcasts hit emotions the hardest? How might you create better stories? What is the arc of interaction on a great podcast versus a not so great? Does anyone you know as a podcaster have a perfect track record? How might the podcast format make a perfect track record impossible? What metric of influence matters most to you? There we go. Four minutes. Done. All right. Well, thank you. That's cool. So let me ask you a couple of quick questions. Do you feel, compared to before we started four minutes ago, do you feel the same emotionally, a little bit better or a little bit worse? Well, I definitely feel better because a number of the questions get me thinking like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Does anyone you know have a perfect track record? (laughs) You know, I was like, well, no, I could see it in the, you know, the iTunes popularity little icons associated with their episodes is, you know, some are definitely 5X others in terms of what they iTunes calls popularity. So I feel better there in terms of, okay, 100% is not something that I 
should feel bad about not hitting, you know? And so there's that. Yep, I hear you. So I feel better there. And then, you know, I feel kind of reflective in terms of, well, yeah, that's heavy. And I also, I'm excited about sort of ideas associated with, you know, we talk about, you know, what generates the most interest. It's sort of like, oh, well, shocks. I could just sort of put two things together in terms of, we tagged every episode by the topic, subtopic, and competency cover just recently. And I've also gotten a little bit more savvy with the Apple engagement data in terms of how to make real sense of it. And so I was like, well, why don't I stick these two things together and we'll see what we see in terms of some themes and commonalities. Okay, okay. And so you, you sound like you slightly reframed the challenge. It sounds like you've got some ideas to do it differently. And this is what I'm talking about. It, it, this question burst never solves a problem, but it creates progress and movement. And that's the point. <laughs> it helps us move to a better and better question. Um, were any of the questions emotionally uncomfortable? Yeah, some of them when it comes to well, how might you create better stories? That gets me thinking to, you know, like top, top podcasts that are really sort of narrative story driven with sound beds and stuff. I was like, right. oh man, those guys are like the best of the world and we're just chatting. <laughs> I'm just chatting <laughs> with professors. <laughs> you know, so how might I create better stories? Oh boy, it seems like there's quite a gap, you know? <laughs> No, I, I, I hear you. And, and, and there, are other, there are ways of closing that. And so my suggestion, Pete, around this is what you just experienced, if you did this two or three times with other people, you would not only continue to get better questions and answers, but you would also engage in a very productive way more and more people who would care about your challenge. Yeah. And help you do something about it. And so it's really powerful, not as a sort of, one-time experience, but as a pattern by which we actually create these conditions where people are wrong and uncomfortable and quiet. It's an artificial way of doing it, but nevertheless, it creates those conditions because my bet is you wanted to answer some of those questions. Am I right? Oh, sure. And I hate to say it, but probably every answer you would have said, it was not going to be helpful, useful, it was probably wrong anyway. So... <laughs> Anyway. Well, and it's cool. Like when you mentioned earlier, it's like, hey, in four minutes, we generated 20 questions. I was like, really? That's a lot of questions for four minutes. But sure enough, I'm counting this up. You know, we got 15 there. And it's so funny you mentioned four minutes because I've just recently been noting that to be a great amount of time to sort of challenge myself to say, I don't know, straighten my desk. You know, it's short enough for me to not be intimidating, but also long enough to make some genuine progress and maybe even really feel like I'm in the zone and want to keep going. So I've recently found four minutes to be kind of a magical timeline for some stuff. And how did you land on four minutes? Two ways. One is um, our sustainable attention span with, with full attention is a little under four minutes as adults. And so to me, that was part of the four minutes. The other part of the four minutes is there's a project I found that, that it's, it's in its nascent early stage, but it's called the 424 Project, where literally if you or I spent just four minutes once a day trying to ask better questions about challenges and opportunities we care about, over the course of 365 days, we've just gifted ourselves 24 hours of our time, one full day of just asking better questions. And, and that, to me, is the other part of it. So part of it is just sustained attention. Four minutes tends to be, in one sense, an upper end. But um, it's also, it's kind of how might we help nudge the questioning capacity of others in the world forward. That's great. And so with that challenge, then, you're trying to find a new buddy each day? 
Absolutely. I mean, so, so I was sitting down with someone who's not only a friend, but he's, we were doing a bit of coaching about some issues and, uh, he run, he's a CEO of a big organization, but his issue was quite personal. And it was basically, I've been very close to my oldest daughter. She's now a teenager, early teen, and she's starting to pull away to friends. And how can I keep this relationship strong? That was his problem definition. We're sitting at lunch having this coaching conversation, and we got out some napkins, did a question verse. Four minutes later, 22 questions later, just hear a few of the questions that we asked, or I asked, or he asked. Um, do I listen enough or tend to act too fast? Do I push too hard? Do I helicopter too much? Do I recognize and praise what she's best at? Um, what talents complement yours as a father? When was the last time? What do her eyes say when she expresses concerns? What are her greatest worries? Um, who would she be if her last name wasn't yours? What's uniquely independent about her? What will you do when she gets married and moves out? What are her greatest areas of independence? And these were tough questions. Yeah. And what I also love about these questions is that question burst is kind of quick. And, you know, some of them, I guess I've heard elsewhere, like, oh, a powerful question is not one that has a yes or no answer. And some of these do, and that's okay. It is okay. You know, some of them do, some of them don't. And they can, they each can have their provocative element in one form or another. And at the end of this questioning process, this guy, he realized, he actually got a little bit teary. And he just said, I've been focused on how not to lose her, but now I'm realizing that the real question is, how can I support her growing and flourishing? How can I let her find her? It's a totally different question. Mm -hmm. But it ended up being the one that opened up a much better relationship. And so the real issue just becomes, how do we, either at work or at home, especially at work, on a productivity sort of logic, it's not only do I, how do I ask better questions, but how can I create a space where other people are regularly asking the tough questions to move what we're doing forward? That's the bigger issue. Mm, this is beautiful. Well, Hal, tell me anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? It's the point I just mentioned, which is whether it's Ed Camel at Pixar having a room called the, the Brain Trust where directors get complete unvarnished, you know, full of candor feedback about their movies when they're building them, where they learn that it sucks, or it's the lion's den at Cirque du Soleil that does the same thing, or it's a working backwards process at Amazon where people read documents about new ideas for 15 minutes, they shut up and be quiet, and then they know the questions are going to fly about the idea. At these innovative organizations with innovative leaders, they systematically, in their own unique way, always create spaces and processes where the tough questions get asked and people know it's going to happen. And when that happens, we start moving the needle. We start doing things better. We start changing the world. And so it's not just about us, but it's about... Are we creating safe enough, consistent spaces for our team, for our organization, for them to feel comfortable being wrong and uncomfortable and quiet so that we can ask the toughest questions? Because those are the ones that unlock our biggest blind spots, the things we don't know we don't know. And that's the key to the future. Beautiful. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I love Ellie Weissel's quote. In the word question, there's a beautiful word, quest. I love that word, end quote. 
You know, the questions that matter are the ones that we have to work hard for. And once we find them, they are a quest. But once we find them, they open up doors otherwise we'll never see and it can benefit us and others. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Actually, way, way back, Stanley Milgram's study on obedience to authority, where common people like you and me, once we get in positions of authority, in that particular study, they gave electrical shocks to people that were life-threatening just because their role expected them to do that. That's the short version of the study. And I've learned over my lifetime, it's really easy for power to go to my head. And the biggest inhibitor of asking questions is power and privilege. And so the challenge for me as a human being or for me as a leader is how do I get beyond that isolation of power and privilege and get out into the world in a way that um, I don't get trapped in my bounds of authority. Mm Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? I absolutely love Ed Catmull's Creativity, Inc. He is so thoughtful about how do you build a sustainably creative organization. And there's another book that's a close second, if not first, depending on the day, by Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak. It is a powerful inward autobiographical look at his figuring out who he was and how to be whole with both the good and the bad that made up this person called Parker Palmer. It's a profound book. Thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I love the Headspace app. Um, it's a meditation app. It's been super powerful for helping my head, my heart, my hands be more reflectively quiet. I can sometimes let anxiety and toxic worry just take over my life. And Headspace has been a godsend to be able to not let that happen quite so much. And so when you're using Headspace, you just kind of march through the sequence that's on there? Sometimes, sometimes I start, but like this one isn't grabbing me. Um, Right now, I just started regrets because one of my challenges is holding on to regrets too long. And um, I've still got to do the first exercise, which is write down all my regrets and then think about them briefly and cross them off before I go to section two. So some of them I work through, some of them I struggle with. Mm hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks that you're working with? I love this one. I heard it from Tiffany Schlein. She founded Webby Awards. Her father was an amazing physician. When Tiffany was showing up, when Tiffany was um, growing up, her father told her over and over and over, quote, if you're not living on the edge, Tiffany, you are taking up too much space. And I think it's just this invitation um, to push ourselves and others to the edge of whatever's possible. I love it. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Easiest way is halgregerson.com. There's a contact space there. um, Or come visit me at MIT. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? At the end of Stephen Hawking's recent book, Brief Answers to the Biggest Question, his final chapter is on superintelligence, AI becoming superintelligence. And he has a dystopian view of the world that it will take over. And my challenge, and it's why I'm now doing what I'm doing, is my next project. How can we nudge the questioning capacity of the world forward so that we as a human race we will always ask the better questions compared to AI or superintelligence. 
because if we don't learn how to do that, we will lose that game. But I'm convinced somehow or another, we can continue to ask the better question. Well, Hal, this has been a ton of fun and powerful, transformative. I think a lot of question bursting is going to be popping up across the world. And it's been a delight. Please keep doing the great work you're doing. Thank you, Pete. You too. Appreciate it. Well, that question burst technique is powerful stuff. I really recommend you try it out. And it's really cool how I think you even get better and more comfortable with being uncomfortable, which is powerful right there. And it goes so fast in terms of just, wow, four minutes, all of a sudden you're sparking all kinds of new ideas. So I think you'll see that I've got more hits coming you know, this year as a result of that four minute question burst of the ideas that started to bloom from that. And I encourage you to chew on something that's a little tricky, maybe some issues you don't know you don't know that are impeding your ability to achieve something that you want. Go ahead and get a trusted friend or colleague and see what this sparks for you. Four minute question burst, huge, powerful, good stuff. Thanks to Hal for that. Hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to albums we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep385. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, You'll catch our next guest, and it is Mindy Jensen, and she is from the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. She has a few perspectives on personal finance, how to open up more options in your career, given the whole money side of that equation. Until next time, peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.